tonight we're going to begin a study of the book of Ruth. And I love the book of Ruth. Ruth is very unique in the Old Testament and all of Scripture, really. Um, and so we're going to talk about that. But tonight what we're doing is we're going to be talking, we're just laying the foundation where this is the introduction to the study. And so tonight we're going to be talking about different themes and different things that are happening in the book of Ruth but we're not actually going to be getting into the verse by verse yet for this evening. So, so tonight as we begin to look at the book of Ruth, we'll start by talking about uh, some background information, the title and background information. Of course, the book of Ruth <coughs> is, excuse me, the book of Ruth is named for a, a Moabite woman. And this Moabite woman, who'd married a, he married a Hebrew man living while they were living in Moab. And after the death of her husband, Ruth migrated with her mother-in-law, Naomi, her widowed Hebrew mother-in-law, to Bethlehem in Israel. And there God providentially provided for her and led her to marry Boaz, a, a prosperous Hebrew farmer. And then Ruth, this is the very, very uh, high, you know, flyover uh, version of it. Then Ruth became the great-grandmother of King David. And she's also listed in the genealogy of Christ in Matthew chapter 1, verse 5. We're going to get back into a lot of those things as we go tonight. But uh, one, one thing that's interesting, Ruth and Esther are the only two books in the Bible that are named for women. Uh, and Esther, they're, they're, very, they're, they're very beautiful stories, both of them. Maybe another time we'll do a study on Esther. But Esther was a Hebrew woman who married a Gentile king. And if you, you probably remember the story, God used Esther in a strategic time in, in the history of Israel to help preserve the nation of Israel from destruction. But Ruth, on the other hand, was, is almost the opposite. She was a Gentile woman who was married to a Hebrew man. And God used Ruth not to, not to preserve the entire nation, but to perpetuate the line of, of, of uh, the Messiah, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll talk a little more about that. And another interesting thing about Ruth, just before we get into some of the other details, you may or may not know, but Orthodox Jews traditionally read the book of Ruth annually on the Feast of Pentecost. I don't know if you know that, but uh, the Feast of Pentecost actually commemorates the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, which again, I, I, I wish I had time to, maybe one day we'll do a series on the feast and what they, and how they coincide with events in the New Testament. But uh, the, the, the Feast of, of, of Pentecost, or uh, also known as the Feast of Weeks, if I remember correctly, uh, which happens, it's, it's a, it was, commemorates the giving of the law. And there's so many parallels there because on Pentecost, what, what, what else was given on Pentecost? The, the Holy Spirit was given to the church on the day of Pentecost. And it's very interesting because uh, Scripture says that that the law kills, but the Spirit gives life. And it's, it's very interesting because when on the day that the law was given at Mount Sinai, 3,000 people were killed by the sword. But on the day that the Spirit was given on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people were saved. There's just so many beautiful things in there. Uh, but it, but the, uh, that feast commemorates the, 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 the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. But it also occurs at the time of the beginning of the offering called the first fruits of the harvest. And, and Ruth's betrothal, this story, took place during the festive hard harvest season when barley was being winnowed. And that's why, that's why they read it on the day of Pentecost, because the, 
That feast has to do with the harvest, and the story happens during that time. Now, when you talk about uh, the authorship of the book of Ruth, here's the, tr- the truth is, no one knows for sure who wrote the book of Ruth. That's something we just don't know. Now, Jewish tradition has attributed the book to Samuel, but that's very unlikely. Uh, if he was the author, the book would have been written near the time when David was anointed the king of Israel. And, and, and one of the reasons then for Samuel's right, if he wrote the book of Ruth, might have been to justify David's claim to the throne. But most scholars nowadays place the date of the writing uh, later than that, uh, during the monarchy, either in the time of David or possibly more likely in the time of, of King Solomon. And, but, you know, and there's different arguments for each one. Since Solomon is not mentioned in the genealogy at the end of the book, one person, you know, you might deduce from that that the book was written in David's time because then you'd say, well, why wouldn't they say Solomon if Solomon was cur- currently the king? But on the other hand, there's also an old custom that had ceased to be practiced. And we'll get to this when we go through the verse by verse study. And that was the exchanging of the sandal. And that was a custom that, that they had had in place but, but was no longer being used. It had fallen out of, out of use. It had ceased to be practiced. And so the writer explains that practice in, in the book. So that tells us that some amount of time had passed. Uh, so th- that makes you think that maybe it was during Solomon's time. Maybe you'd think that was more likely because additional time would have passed for the custom to, fall, to have fallen into disuse. And when you look at the book of Ruth, The book of Ruth, to me, sort of gleams like a beautiful pearl against a jet black background. Because the the action in the narrative took place during the period of the book of Judges. When we start the verse-by-verse study next week, you'll see the very first verse, it tells us that this happened during the days of of the Judges. Now, that's a pretty big span because the days of the Judges, and we don't know exact the exact dates of it, but... It, it, it begins at the end of the prophet Samuel's time of ministry and ends when King Saul was anointed, was anointed king of Israel. So that's a very large span of years. So we, you know, there's no way to pinpoint it exactly, but we do know a lot about the, the time of the judges. Those days were, were sort of the dark ages of Israel's history. Because the victories of Joshua and Moses uh, had been followed then by the judges, the period of the judges, uh, and it was followed by periods of spiritual decline, and then there were brief periods of revival. So it would be steep decline, steep decline. God would intervene because the things would get so bad, they'd call out to God. He'd intervene, send a revival. They'd do pretty good for a while, then go steep decline, steep, steep decline. It kept over and over and over in this in this series. And when you talk about judges, that's where you've got uh, people like Deborah, you have Samson, uh, you, you have uh, Gideon, uh, these different people, they were raised up and they were called judges. Now I'm not teaching about judges tonight, but that's an unfortunate term for us because when we think of a judge, we think of somebody who sits there, you know, with a gavel and says uh, that you're guilty or not guilty, but that wasn't that. It was really more of a sense of a leader that God raised up for the nation during that time period. And, uh, and it was a time with no king because God wanted to rule the nation. And uh, that's a whole different story. We'll get into that. But uh, as the time of the judges wore on, this apostasy deepened till the book ended in corruption and in bloody civil strife. 
And the, the period of the judges was marked by weak faith and irresponsible conduct. And since Ruth was the great grandmother of David, who began his rule in, in Hebron in 1010 BC, then the nearest we can say is that the experiences, the events of the book, not the writing of the book, but the events of the book of Ruth occurred in probably in the last half of the 12th century and that, and, uh, BC. And that, that means that Ruth may have been possibly a contemporary of Gideon, who was one of the judges. And Gideon, we know, he exhibited great faith against overwhelming odds against, during the destruction of, uh, of invading, uh, the invading Midianites and the Amalekites and eastern desert tribes. But then he responded with such great faith and did so well. And then later on, he, seeked, he failed to seek God's advice in everyday affairs of his leadership. And Gideon had many wives and concubines who bore him 70 sons. And after Gideon's death, Abimelech, his son, by his concubine Shechem, killed all of the other sons except for one and established himself as a godless and bloody ruler. And that's just indicative of the time of the judges. It was a ruthless, evil period of time for the most part in the history of Israel. In fact, the, the sensual activities of the judge Samson in a way, is a, is a real picture of one of these heroes, one of these judges. It's a picture of that time because it's a picture of a man who was very mighty in physical strength, but very weak in spiritual and moral character. He struggled with that. And then against this backdrop of national irresponsibility and weak character, suddenly, and, and I think it's strategic that... Ruth fits in the canon of Scripture where it does, because suddenly in the middle of all this, you have Ruth, a Moabitess, and Boaz, a Hebrew landowner, and they shine as bright examples of purity, faith, and responsible living. That's, that right there tells you something about even in the darkest times, there are still people of God who live faithfully and serve God faithfully. You know, we live in pretty dark times, and it's getting worse, but I'm here to tell you, it's like Elijah when, when he was complaining to God, he said, Lord, I'm, I'm the only one left. And he said, no, no, I've got thousands of prophets besides you. There are times when you feel like, Lord, I'm the only one left. I'm the only one that stands for righteousness anymore. I mean, it's, it, but it's just not true. There, there are so many people that are still uh, uh, surrendered to Christ and are living according to his word. And the story of Ruth rem provides a reminder that that even in the darkest times, God is at work in the hearts of his people. God is at work. And we're going to see this in the book of Ruth because they were walking through some very dark times. Ruth and Naomi and, and then the, Naomi's other sister-in-law, Orpah, they were walking through some very difficult, very dark times. Naomi, in fact, we'll see the times were so dark for her that she changed her name. Her name was, was uh, Naomi was sweet, but she came... When she showed up back in Israel, she said, don't call me that. I'm anything but sweet. She said, call me bitter because God has made my life bitter. She got angry toward God. We're going to look at that. We're going to learn a lot of, from that. Um, but but uh, Ruth also stood in stark contrast, not only with the events of the, uh, of the Israelites and the, during this time of the judges, but she also, it's interesting, she stood in stark contrast against the background of her own Moabite ancestry. Uh, Moses detailed the somber story of the nation of Moab's origin because a lot of us, we hear these nations. If you're like me, you hear it over and over again, but you like, you can't remember 
how they came about. Who, who started this nation? Who are the ancestors of this nation? Well, uh, you'll know the story as soon as I begin telling you. How many of you remember after Lot uh, was led out of, out of Sodom and Gomorrah, when he was led out by the angel, and of course Lot's wife looked back and all this, but then he had his two daughters with him. And you remember his two daughters in the midst of all of that, they lost hope of any future after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And in, in faithless irresponsibility, if you remember, they got their father drunk and they got him drunk enough that he would have sex with them in the cave where they were living. And the fruits of their incest were two boys. One of them was named Moab. The other one was named Ben-Ami. And these two sons became the founders of the Moabites, obviously, and the Ammonites, Ben-Ami, which Ben just means son of, son of Ami. So, uh, so, and those two nations uh, often warred against Israel. So Ruth, being a Moabite woman, she broke the tradition of her idolatrous people and, her, and she broke the tradition of her irresponsible ancestor, who was Lot's oldest daughter. And Ruth instead became a believer in the God of the Hebrews, which is a beautiful moment when that happens. I can't wait to get into the whole story. Uh, we're probably going to uh, look at this thing and break it down into, we'll call them four acts, because there are four different scenarios that it's, it sets up very easily for us. But Ruth, in doing all this, she proved herself worthy to, uh, of being mentioned with the finest women of Israel. And in fact, as we'll see in a few moments, ended up with her name in the genealogy of the Savior of the world. Now, there's a couple of other things that we need to talk about that provide an additional backdrop for the story that I want, to, I want to give you a little backdrop, and hopefully this won't be too dry or boring for you, but it's important because it helps us understand a little bit more what's going on in different places. But it's, it's two things. It's the practice of leveret marriage. Uh, that's L-I-V-I-R-A-T-E, leveret marriage. And that's, if you remember, that's the requirement that a man marry the widow of his deceased brother. That's in De Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 and 6. You can find that. We're not going to read it tonight. That's an important thing you need to be aware of when we start to get into the book of Ruth. But the other is the activity of the kinsman redeemer. The kinsman redeemer. And that's a huge one. That's a, in fact, that's, that's one of the most important pictures in the book of Ruth for us as we look back and try to understand what it means for us. But the, the role of kinsman redeemer was about redeeming and restoring the clan, redeeming and restoring the people of the family. That's what the role of the kinsman redeemer, we're going to get that a little bit more, but then the role of the leveret, the person who would marry his brother, that had actually very little to do with the memory of the, of the person who had deceased or anything like that, but it had more to do with property rights than anything else. So let me explain what I mean. A kinsman redeemer, this is the first one. This is really the most important concept of these two when you talk about the book of Ruth, but a kinsman redeemer was the nearest adult male blood relative who served as an advocate for any vulnerable and or fortunate clan member in order to cor correct any disruption to clan wholeness or clan well-being. Now, that's a mouthful there, but 
Already we can see parallels to Jesus because, because he came to be one of us so that he shares our blood. He is a blood relative in that sense. He's a human being. And he came and he served uh, as an advocate for, for us who, as we were vulnerable. And we were, the, we were the ones in his family who, had, who needed the help. So you see that already. There are a number of specific socio-legal context in which the kinsman redeemer takes upon himself the duties of redemption and recovery. I'm going to read these to you. There's one for sure, and maybe another one that you can see that we'll see playing out in the book of Ruth. But this is what the kinsman redeemer could do or would, would have a responsibility to do in, any, in these given situations. Number one was to redeem, or in other words, to reclaim through monetary payment property once owned by an impoverished clan relative, but was sold out of economic necessity. So a kinsman redeemer, this, this guy has to sell his money. He's he, uh, not to sell his money. That'd be kind of weird. I'd like to sell you my money. How much you give me for it? He had to sell his property, his land, uh, because he was poor. He had to have some money and that was his last resort. But it was very, very, it, uh, it was critical in their culture that that land stay in the family. So the kinsman redeemer would be the person who would be responsible to reclaim that land on behalf of this other person by buying it back. He redeems the property uh, for that impoverished clan relative. Another situation would be to redeem impoverished clan relatives who were forced to sell themselves into servitude uh, to a resident alien or to another Israelite. Now, uh, you know, we have other terms. We've, we have in more modern days, uh, you've heard the term indentured servant, but that sort of thing. The idea behind it is somebody could say, you know, I'm so poor, I need help, or maybe I'm in debt, and so I'm going to sell myself, I'm going to sell my services, I'm going to serve you for whatever amount of time, and then as you pay me, that will, that will pay off the debt, that sort of thing. And so the kinsman redeemer could pay that off and, and redeem that person out of servanthood. Third thing was to, to uh, the kinsman redeemer was, could act as the blood redeemer to avenge the killing of a clan relative. Number four was to act as recipient of money, paid as restitution for, for wrong committed against a clan relative who is now deceased. So just because the guy passed away doesn't mean that the person who did them wrong is off the hook. He pays that money to the, to the kinsman redeemer. And then uh, the next one was to assist a clan relative in a lawsuit so that justice is done. And then the <clears throat> next one is to redeem the wife of the deceased. This is what we most think of when we think of this term. Uh, these last two are what we tend to think of. But to redeem the wife of the deceased, in, in, in other words, to acquire legal right in order to raise up the name of the deceased upon its property by acquiring the wife of the deceased. <clears throat> and then the last one, and this one is very clearly in the book of Ruth, that is to redeem or to restore a clan, a clan widow facing old age alone without anybody to care for her. And so we see, we see that, and we see that one, and I think we see uh, number one taking place, the first one where the redeeming of a property was taking place in this story. Uh, now, it's really important for us to understand, uh, as we understand Ruth, and it really gives us a picture of, of Christ's redemption for us, it's 
very important to, to realize that the kinsman redeemer, while having a responsibility, maybe you could say ethically, to perform uh, redemption and restoration, he was not obligated legally to do so. The, the, the fact that there was an apparent hierarchy of response, we'll see this in the book of Ruth, uh, because there was somebody else who was first in line to redeem the situation, to be kinsman redeemer for Ruth and for Naomi. But uh, the fact that there was a hierarchy indicates, indicates that there was some sense of volition, there was choice, there's determination, these types of things were involved because otherwise you wouldn't need a hierarchy because if it was required of that one person, then that would be it. Uh, thus, what it means to us is that the kinsman redeemer must be willing to perform redemption. They weren't forced to, they did it on their own. Another beautiful picture of Jesus. That he didn't do what he did for us because he had to. He did it because he chose to. He wanted to redeem us. And that's uh, very much in the picture of that. Now, in regard to Leveret Law, uh, this is the, uh, the, the idea of Leveret marriage, that sort of thing. The purpose of the Leveret, the Leveret is the person who is actually marrying the widow. The purpose of the Leveret uh, was uh, to prevent extinction of the deceased person's title to his inheritance. It had almost everything to do with property rights. Um, and I'll get into the explain what this means and the implications of it. The, the offspring, if, if, if my brother died and I became the leveret and I married his wife and he had no children, so I, I married, took the, his wife in order to have a child, the first child born, the first male child is going to be his offspring. It's, it's what would be called a legal fiction. We're going to say that this is not my child. This is his child, even though the child will take my name, but it's his child. So he gets that inheritance, not me. Uh, he, and so uh, and that's significant because it's it's it, because of that. It's very clear that the leveret is a is a great sacrifice on the part of the brother because he the, he might if he doesn't do anything, he just and just let the deceased remain and leave everything as it was without issue, then in the end, he could actually take over the entire inheritance for himself. So by doing this, he's going to be forfeiting part of an inheritance that could come to him eventually. So I'll give you a story that from this, from the Old Testament, to give you a picture of this, and, and you'll remember the story. I'm going to talk, talk about Judah and Tamar. Judah uh, had not acted responsibility in the case of his daughter-in-law, daughter Tamar. Judah had three sons by his Canaanite wife. And Judah's, Judah's eldest son, whose name was Ur, E-R, <laughs> I always thought, you know, what a terrible name. What's your name? Ur. But anyway, so he has, his eldest son, Ur, uh, uh, married Tamar, who was also a Canaanite woman. Now, this son, Ur, happened to be a very wicked man, and so God it took his life. And then because he died without having a child, Judah gave his second son, Onan, to Tamar to perform the leveret responsibility of raising up a son for his dead brother. Now, here's the thing. Had Onan just refused outright and said, I'm not going to do it, he would have gained nothing. But he, because, because he knew that either his father or his younger brother could have performed the leveret, and thus produced an heir for Ur, 
That's kind of fun of you to say. I've never said it out loud before. An heir for Ur. Okay. Now the thing is, Ur was the firstborn son. So Ur, therefore, by Jewish law, was entitled to a double share, a double portion. So his fictional son, as a, if he had taken him as a leveret, would also get a double portion. So that means that Onan, his potential loss was even greater because if he does nothing uh, or if, 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 if nothing happens, if there's no child, then he's set to get a much greater portion of the inheritance from his father. You see this? But if he takes on, if he doesn't do anything, his father or his younger brother might become the leveret, produce an heir, and then he has no shot at any of it. So what does he do? He devised a, a trick, some, some subterfuge, subterfuge. So he ostensibly took, undertook the responsibility given to him, but he made sure it never really happened. So he made it look like he was doing what he was supposed to do, but he took care that no heir could possibly result from the union. He had intercourse with Tamar, but made sure she, that he did not impregnate, impregnate her. And by doing this, what he was doing, he was trying to manipulate the system to make sure that he gained for himself his dead, dead brother's inheritance along with his own. So greed for property was thus Onan's motivation. Hence, God judged him and Onan died. After Onan's death, Judah, which I can understand maybe, he did not give his third son Shelah to Tamar. Because I mean like... Uh, it's sort of like the story in the, in the New Testament where the, the uh, Sadducees came to Jesus and said a man was married and then he died and she married his brother according to this law and, and went down seven brothers later. And, you know, if I was the seventh brother after six brothers died after marrying to this girl, I'd be saying, please, daddy, don't make me. You know what I'm saying? And, and I'm, maybe that's what happened here. But, but Judah is like, you know, I only have one son left. I can't afford to marry him off to this woman because this is obviously bad for their health. And so he doesn't do what he's supposed to do. And, uh, and, and uh, so it appeared that, that Ur's line would cease and that, and that Ur's claim to his inheritance would cease because he has no son. There's no place for it to go. Therefore, that would leave Tamar destitute. However, after Judah became a widower, Tamar posed as a harlot and seduced Judah. She went in disguise and seduced him, pretended she was a prostitute. In that process, she conceived and bore twins whose names were Perez and Zerah. And I'm not going to get into the whole thing of how Judah got really indignant when he found out she was pregnant, and then he realized that he was the father. But uh, in, in, in spite of Tamar's actions, Judah declared at the end of it all that she was more righteous than he because he had refused to fulfill his responsibility and give his third son to hers. So, Boaz, however, willingly took the kinsman redeemer and the leveret responsibility, and he married the widowed Ruth, even though it meant that some of that, some of that it put him at risk. We'll get into that in another week. And, and in this account of Ruth with Boaz and this kinsman redeemer and the uh, all of these things, it's, there's a very, very strong overtone of grace. Since Boaz was not within the immediate circle of leveret responsibility, he wasn't 
the brother of Ruth's deceased husband. He, was, he wasn't even the closest relative, as we're going to discover when we get into the, to the book. The fact is, he did not have to do anything. He was not legally or ethically required to lift one finger to do anything to help Ruth or Naomi. But his willingness to accept this responsibility showed the quality of his character as well as his love for Ruth. And it shows us, again, the picture of Jesus who didn't have to, yet chose to redeem us. This, this willing action of Boaz placed him in, in very sharp contrast to, his, contrast to his, his ancestor Judah because Judah didn't want to do it. And he didn't want to, to have his son do it. So then when the elders of the gate of Bethlehem witnessed the Leveret transaction between Boaz and Ruth, they blessed their union and they actually mentioned uh, Perez, whom Tamar born, bore to Judah, which, by the way, it's interesting. I didn't, I, didn't wanna, I didn't mention this, but when I said that Tamar had twin sons, uh, you, you see even there a picture of God's grace because Judah had lost two sons and she had two, two, uh, two sons herself, twins, one for each of the dead sons. So you see, even in that mess, God's grace was there. Um, now Ruth, she stood, uh, Boaz stood in contrast with Judah because of his willingness to do this. But Ruth stood in very stark contrast with Tamar in that, in that Tamar gained her leveret fulfillment, or excuse me, Ruth gained her leveret fulfillment uh, uh, honorably according to Mosaic law, whereas Tamar use the disguise and use discussion. Uh, but with all of this said, the, the births of Perez to Ramar, to Ramar Tamar, and, and Obed to Ruth and, and Boaz, without those births, the line from Judah to David would have been broken. And if the line of, from Judah to David had been broken, then the line from Judah to Jesus would have been broken. So this is, this is God doing something way bigger. And I'm going to talk about this in a minute. Doing something way bigger than what any of the people who are involved could see. Way bigger. The, the, and the grace of God was evident in that, in that he uh, included several non-Israelites in the line of David. Since, since this was the line through which Christ came, it Again, that is another foreshadowing. It foreshadowed God's inclusion of Gentiles in the work of David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Trying to, I mean, just you see, in fact, there are four non-Israelite women who are mentioned in Christ's genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. There's Tamar, we already mentioned her, a Canaanite who became the mother of Judah's children, Perez and Zerah. There's Rahab. You remember Rahab? She was a Canaanite harlot. She was a prostitute. And, and in Jericho, who became an ancestress of Boaz. Then there is Ruth. We're going to learn more about her in the coming days, but the coming weeks. But she was a Moabite woman who became the mother of Obed and the great-grandmother of, of David. And then there's Bathsheba, the mother of, the, of, of Solomon by David, who had been the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Therefore, she was most likely a Hittite as well. And all of this tells us that even, even in the process, it's all just a picture, it's all a shadow showing us that salvation was not going to be just for the Jews, but he was going to be bringing in the Gentiles as well. He had been doing it all along. This is what shows us, is that it's not, just a, it's not even really a new thing in the New Testament when suddenly the Gentiles were grafted in. God had been doing it all along. 
Ruth and, and, and Bathsheba and Rahab and Tamar, they were all Gentiles that God had pulled into the story, that His grace had done that. You know, the, the book of Ruth is a romantic quest that began in tragic circumstances and ended in joyous fulfillment. But, and because Ruth put her faith in the God of Israel, she was accepted, which is an illustration again of God's grace to the Gentiles. And, and since God's people are recipients of His grace, likely uh, they, like, just like uh, Ruth and Boaz, they should respond in faithful obedience to Him and gracious acts toward other people. And God's people should be about the, His business in the ordinary activities of daily living. Now, Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, so, so Ruth, let me put it this way, Ruth is a picture of the Gentiles who come to Christ. It's, it, you can see her. It, it, maybe you look at it as a mirror that's a reflection. So we see four reflections. We see a reflection uh, we, uh, of, of Ruth, and, we, and in that we see a reflection of the Gentiles. But Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, is really, a, for us, a picture of Jesus Christ who paid the price to redeem us and to make us his bride. Uh, and Boaz, he acted in grace to redeem Ruth, and Jesus acted in grace by giving himself as a, as a redeemer to provide redemption for all mankind. Now, here's what I want to do. I wanna, uh, that's just some background stuff. I want to just close tonight by talking about the practical lessons of the book of Ruth. Some of these I'll have more to say about than others, but I want to just give you, let's see how many of them are, six, seven, eight, eight different things, eight different uh, practical lessons <clears throat> that I think are there all throughout the book of Ruth, that if you keep some of these things in mind, you'll see how the application comes to us. Because here, here's the thing, it's very, uh, it's, it's one of, for me, one of the most difficult things to do is to teach a Bible study on a narrative to teach a Bible study on a story. Because, listen, it's easy to teach an epistle written by Paul because it's all teaching, right? So it's easy to pull the lessons out because he, he lays the lessons out and I can just expound on that. But when it's a story, it's a little more difficult because, uh, you know, the story, like this one in particular, doesn't really give us application so that's something that we have to, through the, with the help of the Holy Spirit, we have to look at it and say, okay, now what's the application? What does this mean for me? What is this saying for us? And that's what we're going to be doing. So, so these are the lessons that we see through this story of Ruth. The first one is this. No matter how difficult the situation may be, if we surrender the Lord and obey Him, He will see us through. We're going to see Naomi and Ruth or in as about as, as bad a situation as possible in their day. Because as widows, and uh, they, had, they have very little rights, they have no property rights, uh, they, they have everything is stacked against them. They don't have sons to take care of them in their old age. They're in a very destitute situation. And yet they continue to trust the Lord. And the Lord kept opening the doors at just the right time in just the right way. And he saw them through that and brought them to a place of, of great abundance. Second thing is this. No person is so far, far outside the reach of God's grace that he or she cannot be saved. Listen, <laughs> Ruth had everything stacked against her. She was not an Israelite. 
She was a Moabite. She, was, she had grown up with idolatry. She had grown up with the religion of the Moabites. She was far from God. She was, there was just, just it would be hard to figure out a, a way to draw a line to get Ruth from Moab to Israel to be able to find God. And yet God managed to do just that. The Lord saved her. The third thing is, God providentially guides those who want to obey Him and want to serve others. There are many, many times in your life when you, if, you, if your heart is a heart of obedience and you want to obey Him and you want to serve Him, and in, excuse me, and in serving Him, that also means you're serving others. When you choose to do that, when that's your, your life, when you're consumed with that, there are going to be times when you will be led by the hand of God even when you don't even realize God is the one directing your steps. Naomi and Ruth had no idea that going back to Israel at the time that they were going back was exactly what God had in, in, in mind for them, that he had things that were in place and the dominoes were going to start to fall. But because Ruth was concerned for Naomi... You know, because we're going to see, Naomi said to Ruth and Orpah, her other daughter-in-law, she told them more than once, go back to your family, go away. I have nothing to offer you. But Ruth was so determined to serve her mother-in-law and to take care of her mother-in-law that she said, no, I'm going to go with you, Naomi, even though that means in our culture, that means almost certain death. It's going to be destitute, but I'm still, I'm, I'm going to go with you, Naomi. And in that process, God directed her steps to a place of great, a, a place of salvation, really. The next one is this. It does no good to get angry at God and blame him for our mistakes. Uh, Naomi was in a very bad place. And she was in a place where she was, she was blaming God. She said, God did this to me. God, in essence, she said, destroyed my life. And, and, but yet in that process, in, in this story, we'll see God use Ruth to lead Naomi out of despair and into God's blessings. Here's another good one. And maybe you never thought about this. There are no small decisions with God. The little things that you choose, you know, that you don't know where they're going to lead you and how God can use those things. Ruth's decision to glean in the fields led her to becoming an ancestress of King David and even of Jesus himself. You know, just this one little thing of saying, well, I, I'll go out there. In, in, another, in, in another way to look at it is she did what she could do. You know, we talked about this Sunday in the message on, on Sunday that one of the things we do, you do what you can do. And the next thing is, Give God what you can't do. And the third thing is trust him no matter what. Well, she did what she could do. She didn't just go back to Israel and say, well, God will su supply. Let me just sit here and wait for it. She went out and did what she could do. She went out and, and be began to glean the fields. And as she brought back, uh, as we see in the story, she brings back way more than Naomi ever expected her to do. And that's because Boaz saw Ruth out in the field and said, hmm, I like you. And uh, that's a modern translation. That's not exactly how you'll see it. And, uh, and, and, and anyway, this whole process, it was a small decision to go out and glean. 
And not only to go out and glean, but to go out and glean in this specific field. And it was in that process that God led her to greater things. The next one is this. It is wise to wait on the Lord and let him work out his loving purposes. After we have done all that we can do. This kind of really touched on this a moment ago. After we've done all that we can do, we have to give God the rest and trust him with it. And then we know he'll never fail us. He'll never fail us. Here's another one. This is this one's I think is huge in this story. And it's very, very huge for us if we can get this and remember this in our minds. We are not able to detect with perfect clarity the hand of God in the circumstances of our lives. Much less see where he is leading, where he is heading with them. I'm going to say it again. We are not able to detect with clarity the hand of God in our circumstances, much less see where he is going with them. We just can't see it. However, here's what I want you to hear. When we find his autograph in the narratives of biblical history, we begin to recognize the same or similar patterns and principles emerging in our lives too. So we learn to see his handwriting in our own experiences. So we we say, I don't know exactly what you're doing, God, but I've seen stories like this. I've seen you work in circumstances and situations in people's lives as I read the story of Ruth, as I read the story of Boaz, and I see you doing all these things. I know it's not exactly the same, but this has kind of a similar feel, Lord. I'm walking through some really tough times, but I also know that your hand is on me, and I know that you're you're going to cause all things to work together for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. And so, God, God, I don't understand it all, but I can see your handwriting on this and I trust you that you're going to take me somewhere through this. The English poet William Cowper, who struggled a great deal with, to come to terms with his frequent deep depression, he teaches about this principle in his famous words. And, and I actually read uh, this week a number of verses that I had no idea even existed. But this is the one that most of us remember. He wrote this. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. God's in all of it. Now, here's the problem, though. The problem of looking for footsteps planted in the sea is that a footstep planted in the sea immediately becomes invisible. You can't see it. God moves in mysterious ways. We do not have immediate access to his blueprints. We cannot second guess his purposes. We don't understand what's going on. We can't begin to figure out what's going on. But we have to do one thing that we can learn, and that is to trust and obey him on the basis of his word. We have seen him be faithful over and over again, not only in our lives, but that's why we read the word of God. We read the story of Ruth. We read the story of Abraham. We read the story of David. We read all the stories of these great men and women of God throughout history. And as we read those things, it reminds us that every, that that God came through and God's purpose was fulfilled and his will was done over and over and over again. And he redeemed people no matter what they had done and no matter what they, where they had been, he did those things. And so as we see that, we learn to trust and obey because he's the same God today as he was then, which means that if he did it, then he'll do it now. And I can sit back and trust him. 
That's the beauty of it. One of the reasons we can do so is because of the evidence given to us in the scriptures of his wise providence. And here's, here's the last one, really related to that one. I, I debated whether it even to make it part of that. It's, but here it is. Finite creatures can never fully comprehend what an infinite God is doing. Finite creatures can never fully comprehend what an infinite God is doing. You know, there, there are those who are always sure of the details of God's plan for them. And I just always feel like when somebody is so absolutely certain of every little detail of God's plan that I, I just feel I kind of treat them with a little suspicion. I just wait and see because sometimes I think they're in for a shock, you know. But here in the book of Ruth, God allows us to see the kind of thing he does so that we can trust him when we see similar patterns being woven into our lives. At the time, of course, what God was accomplishing in the lives of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz, the truth is it was far from clear to them. In fact, I don't think they saw any of it because they had no idea. She had no idea when she gave birth, when she buried Boaz, that her grandson was going to be the greatest king of Israel. Because they hadn't had a king. Knew of no such thing. She had no concept of a king of Israel. So, so the, it was far from clear to any of them, e even though they were the three people most involved in the story. They were right in the middle of it, and yet they still could not see what was going on. M more than that, right at the end of the story, the author shows how God was doing far more than they, than, than, than they could have realized during their lifetimes. Because all of a sudden we see, oh, King, King David, whoa. You know, if, if you're reading Ruth the first time and you're an Israelite, you'd be reading this and you'd like, you, you say, well, this is such a beautiful, beautiful story. It's, oh, I love this. I love that. Oh, that's wonderful. And, King David, what? Ah, now this means something different to me. And in, in fact, here's the, the, even greater than that. As Christians in the New Testament era, we know even more than the author of the book of Ruth. Because the author of the book of Ruth didn't know about Jesus yet, who was going to be born from the line of David. And, and, and we know more than the author of the book of Ruth about what God was planning and what God was working out through the lives of these central characters in the, in the story of the book of Ruth. We know that it was all about leading to Jesus and, and that he was, it was all about one kinsman redeemer giving birth to the kinsman redeemer for all of mankind. We know all of that because we're looking back over, over centuries. And, and in this way, when we see these things, when we realize God is working in all these situations, in this way, God is saying to us, do you, do you see how I planted my footsteps in the sea and the lives of these characters in past days? They couldn't see it, but I was there. I was working. I was doing something. And he says, let me show you how I did that. This is the kind of God I am. This is the kind of thing I do. And, and that, is a, that is precisely what you can expect me to do in your life too. Trust me. Trust me. I know exactly what I'm doing. First we meet Ruth. When we first meet her, she's a destitute widow. We follow her as she joins God's people, gleans in the grain fields and risks her honor at the threshing floor of Boaz. And in the end, 
we see Ruth becoming the wife of Boaz. And what a picture of how we come to faith in Christ. We begin with no hope and are rebellious aliens with no part in the kingdom of God. Then as we risk everything by putting our faith in Christ, God saves us, forgives us, rebuilds our lives, and gives us blessings that will last throughout eternity. Boaz's redeeming of Ruth is a picture of Christ redeeming us. That's the beauty of this story. And with that, we're going we're gonna to close, and then we're going to get into the verse-by-verse verse next week. And, uh, and so come, read, be reading the book of Ruth. Every, maybe it's so short, you can read it every week. You can read it in one day, but, but read it multiple times. Get it into, you, into your mind and your heart as we begin to study it. But why don't you bow your head together with me, and we'll pray and, ask, and, and thank God for His goodness in our lives. Lord, we see as we read the book of Ruth how you are at work even when they didn't see it, when they didn't understand it, and even where they may have sensed you moving, your plan was even greater than they, they ever could have imagined. And God, I pray you'd help us to realize you're still that same God. And that, Lord, in the midst of tragedy and circumstances that are difficult and pain and in the middle of whatever is going on in our lives, Lord God, we know that we can trust you because in the same way that you were at work, at work in those days, you're at work now and you're doing something that not only, even though we can sense your hand at work at times, we can't even begin to comprehend everything that you're doing. And we can't even begin to comprehend the impact that this could have that you're doing in our lives, even on future generations. But God, we know you're there. I pray you'd teach us, Lord God, to just to sit back and to rest and to trust you. Not to be lazy, we'll do what we can do, but God, we're going to give you what we can't do, and then God, we're going to trust you no matter what. And we give you thanks in the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.